Naming Asteroids on episode 390 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars. Our guest this morning or today, depending on when you're listening to this, is Peter Jedicke. I first met Peter when we served on the RASC National Council together. Craig Levine, who was a past guest on this show uh, from last spring, uh, he had moved to London, Ontario and... Uh, had uh, introduced me to Peter, but Peter uh, was national president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada from 2004 to 2006, and is now a fellow of the RASC. He is also honorary president of the RASC London Centre, where we have lots of friends and listeners and a good uh, brewery down there. And his favorite astronomical topic, both astrophysically and as an observer, is globular clusters. And he co-authored the RESC Observer's Handbook section on star clusters. We were chatting before the show, and I think we're going to maybe try to do one on globulars. Lastly, Peter helped start the list of asteroid names with Canadian connections. And that will be our topic today. Great to have you on the show, Peter. Welcome. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, it was great. And thanks for, uh, I really liked your suggestion of maybe doing a whole separate show on globular clusters. I'm certainly interested in them. And I know you as an observer are, so uh, people can perhaps look forward to that at a future uh, point in time. It's a worthy topic. I think so. I think so. So we'll get started here, uh, Peter. Uh, you've you've been working on naming asteroids, and I, I, this was something that I've known about. Uh, Dave Chapman, our mutual friend, suggested that uh, that we uh, invite you to come on as as a guest. So we certainly appreciate you coming on. Uh, but maybe we can just get started and uh, simply talk about uh, perhaps uh, what is an asteroid before we get into talking about uh, the naming of, of these bodies. Right, yeah. So asteroids are one of the major categories of objects in astronomy, especially if you focus on the solar system, as some folks do. And um, the idea that has come down to us after a couple generations now of research is that asteroids and comets kind of belong together. And I've heard folks say, for instance, tongue-in-cheek, that a comet is a uh, rocky snowball and an asteroid is a snowy rock ball. <laughs> In other words, they, 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 they kind of fit on a kind of a spectrum of solar system objects that are composed of rocky materials and icy materials in various mixtures. And if it's more rocky, it's more likely to be an asteroid. The kind of obvious way to tell the difference is that if the object passes close enough to the sun to cause the ices to volatilize, then the object will show a coma and a tail. Uh, and if it doesn't have enough ices to do that, then it's not a comet, it's an asteroid instead. But there've been a couple of famous cases in you know recent decades where uh, a, an expected asteroid suddenly sported a tail and changed its category to comet, or a comet didn't show a tail when it was expected to, and therefore it was presumed to be more dry materials, more rocky materials, and sort of got put in with the asteroids after that. So these are objects that are a fair bit smaller than the planets uh, of the, and the moons of the solar system, which might be measured in hundreds or even thousands of kilometers in size. And only the very largest asteroids uh, are even as much as a few hundred kilometers in size. So. They do orbit the solar system according to the same planetary 
rules of gravity that the planets follow. Uh, and, and we often hear that they are concentrated in a gap between Mars and Jupiter. So a significant majority of all the known asteroids are in that gap, but they're not restricted to that. There are asteroids whose orbits will come interior even of the planet Mercury. And of course, in recent years, there's been more work done on asteroids that orbit far, far out in the solar system. There may even be a second so-called asteroid belt, which is named after uh, Kuiper, the Kuiper belt, far out in the solar system. And then, of course, there's the repository of comets, which is even farther out, called the Oort cloud. And whether there's asteroids in there, I mean, probably most astronomers would say it's obvious that there will be asteroids there as well. But I don't think we have any kind of observational evidence that would show that. So once again, the asteroids are a category of objects in the solar system. So, Peter, I... I should have put this question first. I did have it in my notes here, but I got a little bit out of order this morning. Uh, you were giving a presentation last night at the uh, observatory just outside of uh, London, Ontario. Uh, how did that presentation go? That that was a presentation on asteroids as well, wasn't it? Um, I, I did mention asteroids, but this was out on the campus at Western U, okay. the, the Hume Cronin Memorial Observatory. During the school year, they do one uh, one open house each month on average. And last night was the open house for January. In the summertime, when obviously the conditions are more conducive to visits and having the dome open, they do uh, open house every Saturday night. Oh, wow. So anyway, so for last night being the first of the year, of the calendar year, they asked me to kind of give an introduction and run down all the uh, worthwhile astronomical events in the year of 2024. And despite the weather, we had um, a little more than a dozen folks turn out. Nice. And so I gave a talk about the upcoming total solar eclipse, which is going to be big news in southern Ontario, and then a couple of other events and a couple of rocket launches and things like that. And I, I mean, I enjoy doing that. It's it w w as you guys know, sharing our passion for astronomy is a really strong motivator. And anytime you put folks down in chairs in front of me, I'll start talking about astronomy. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I I can relate to that. I can relate to that. So, uh, so we talked a little bit about the, uh, what asteroids are, um, do you have some examples? I know that, you know, you, you mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, the difference between asteroids and comets is, is a bit of a gray zone. I, I think it's the, it's the asteroid slash perhaps expired comet that that's associated with the Geminid shower, which we just had in December, I think, isn't it? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I've always thought of meteor showers as very difficult to observe. Uh, I, I did sit outside once, I think it was 1993 for the Geminids, and I didn't see a single one, and I <laughs> froze my toes off. Uh, so I don't tend to look at the Geminids much, but yeah, if it turns out that the Geminids are associated with an asteroid instead of a comet, that would yeah. certainly be a worthwhile research result. Yeah, okay. So what are what are some examples of some bright uh, or famous asteroids that uh, people might be familiar with or should be familiar with? Right. So the the three that I think I should talk about uh, are the first asteroid that was discovered and that's asteroids are known by their numbers and then there's other designations as well. So a lot of folks will mention the first asteroid and just call it Ceres. But I try to follow the rule that I always mention its number. So I'll say it's one series. One series. And then, of course, the fourth asteroid discovered was 4 Vesta. 
And Vesta is interesting. Both Ceres and Vesta have been visited by spacecraft. So we know more about them now than we did in, in my childhood. And I presume both of you, Chris and Shane, you might not be as old as me, but you know, you're old enough to remember before the days when we had spacecraft visiting asteroids and comets. Anyway, both um, Ceres and Vesta have been visited. And so we've got really good photographs of them. What makes Vesta kind of special is that the um, folks who study rockiness and the geology of asteroids are pretty sure that we know that Vesta had an incident maybe more recently than many things that happened in the solar system. So instead of billions of years ago, maybe a few tens of millions of years ago, there was a some kind of an impact or some kind of a shattering of Vesta. And so we do have categories of meteorites that are associated with Vesta here on Earth. And that makes Vesta kind of special. We probably know more about the actual rocks in Vesta than we know about any other specific known asteroid. And then the third asteroid that everybody will recognize goes by the name of 134340 Pluto. And of course, it was formerly known as a planet. And some folks still get upset about that. <laughs> And that does highlight the fact that uh, I think as we go forward talking about asteroids and asteroid names, we're going to encounter the topic of controversy more than once. Yeah, I, I was thinking about uh, what you're saying about Vesta and and then also uh, Pluto and that Pluto had been a planet and, you know, it does have a different terrain perhaps than we think about those just rocky bodies like we've seen in, uh, you know, space movies and such. But uh, Ceres had that big, I remember Ceres when they were bringing the spacecraft in, it had that big cryo or ice volcano yep. and they were seeing that from a distance. That's that's one of the things that always stuck out with me for Ceres. Yep. Yeah, that was one of those really crazy moments. You know, do you guys know Ivan Semenuk? I don't know him. No. So, so I know, know of who he is, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Ivan's been a science and astronomy writer for a couple decades now. I think he's still with the Globe and Mail as of today. Anyway, Ivan once uh, gave a presentation in which he talked about that moment of possible discovery when something completely unexpected might show up, simply because you're looking at something you've absolutely never looked at before. And so when the spacecraft approached Ceres, and for the first time took a photo that showed detail on the surface of Ceres. And by golly, there was this bright white spot. Nobody really knew what it was. And sure, now it's easy to be glib and say, yeah, well, the only thing it really could have been could had to be some kind of salt deposits under the surface that are revealed by space weathering, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there's that exciting moment as the spacecraft was approaching and this little white dot revealed itself to be two white dots. And by golly, you didn't know for sure what that might turn out to be. What an exciting moment that was. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, how are they discovered, uh, Peter? Um, what's What's been the method in the past? And, and you know, how did we learn about these things? I thought you might ask. <laughs> so, of course, the major planets we know were discovered, well, in antiquity. We have no real record of them. And when we think of Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, you know, every ancient culture was aware of their existence, various explanations for what they could have been or were, or, you know, connections to humankind. But uh, it wasn't until the late 18th century 
when uh, Herschel discovered Uranus, that, you know, folks suddenly thought, wait a minute, there's maybe there's more to this solar system thing than, than we thought of. And so I think there was a kind of a craze in astronomy in the late 18th century for folks to pay a different kind of attention to the sky. You know, there's an adage that you only see what you're expecting to see. And if you grew up with the idea that there are no new objects anywhere to be seen in the sky, you're not going to look for new objects in the sky. But after Herschel discovered Uranus, folks had a different mindset. And so it was essentially at the very beginning of the 19th century, January 1st, 1801, that the first asteroid was discovered, literally by a person looking through a telescope and making a note of the stars in the field of view, and then coming back a couple days later and noticing that one of them had changed its position. This is the same technique that Herschel uh, that was used by Herschel to discover Uranus. And so the astronomers were ready for this. But the fact that Uranus was a discernible round dot in Herschel's first view, essentially, you knew it was a planet. But the first asteroid, which was one series, was only visible as a star. And yet it had this motion like a planet. So there was a quite a bit of excitement in the idea that something that looked like a star but moved like a planet, and that's where, of course, the name asteroid comes from, because asteroid means literally like a star. So it's a planet that's moving like a star. So that was the first discovery, a visual discovery, where someone literally made a record of what pattern of stars they saw and noticed one of them was different than the previous check, which might have been a few nights before. And all of the asteroids for basically the first 75 or 80, 85 years in the 19th century were discovered by that method. And many of them were discovered afterwards by that method as well. But as you can, as you can imagine, that's a very laborious method. And it does take a fairly intense look at the individual stars in a field of view. If you're discovering an asteroid that happens to be out near the edge of your field of view and you don't see it a few nights later, you basically have to start over again. And it's all it's fraught with all kinds of problems. And this might help explain why there were actually so few asteroids discovered in the early days. Once photography became available, the idea of taking a photograph of the sky and then taking another photograph a few nights later, and then you can take your time and compare them because the photograph forms a permanent record, you can take your time and compare them, then things really took off and asteroid discoveries grew a great deal at the very end of the 19th century and then well all the way through the 20th century essentially. And so the number of asteroids discovered went up quite a bit between the 20th century as opposed to the 19th century. And then the third method that's used today of course is the idea of using some kind of a solid state camera. I'm not an expert on these technological things, whether it's a CCD or a CMOS camera, but all these highfalutin digital things that uh, you can point at the sky and have the computer analyze the data. So since about the early 1990s, you don't even really need a human to look at the data. You can just turn a software algorithm loose on one photograph after another and the software will identify any point of light that moves from one uh, image, from one frame to the next. And then those can be flagged as potential asteroids and then followed up, possibly even 
automatically by the same system, but generally the follow-up is done by actually taking photographs with the camera, but then looking at them. And then, of course, after that, the same problem has always existed since the time of Herschel, and you've got to make an effort to take enough measurements so that you can analyze those numbers and end up with an orbit calculation. The orbit calculation does two things. First of all, it establishes that we know where the object is in the solar system. And as I said earlier, the majority of them, a large majority of asteroids are in that belt between Mars and Jupiter. But the other th reason, of course, why it's important to do the calculations for the orbit is so that you can create a list of future predicted positions, which astronomers call an ephemeris. And once the ephemeris has been established, and nowadays, of course, it's all posted online, then other observers can go and you might want to call it verify, verification of the discovery. But of course, after that, it's just study and learning about them or even casually looking at them. If your name happens to be on an asteroid, you might take a particular interest in, in following it across the sky. Yeah, very cool. Peter, can you, this might not be a fair question, but do you know like when, say, the golden age of early asteroid discovery, um, you know, was there an excitement within the astronomy world about what these objects could be, might be, you know, and, and the minds begin to wander? Was there any, any kind of that or am I over romanticizing it? <laughs> no, I think it's, I think it's quite fair to say that. Uh, I mean, the idea of what an asteroid was, since it quite obviously wasn't a planet on the same scale as Mars or Jupiter or Saturn or Uranus, which was known, of course, the mathematical tools for analyzing orbits kind of existed in 1801 at the time of the first discovery, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't the kind of push-button calculation that you can do today, you know, on your HP 34C emulator. So, yeah, there was an awful lot of work and an awful lot of speculation as to what they might be. Uh, it's interesting to note that the first few dozen asteroids actually were designated with planet symbols. Mm. Same way you sometimes see a symbol for Jupiter or Mercury or Venus or Mars or even Earth. The first few dozen asteroids got symbols of their own, which, of course, the symbols got more and more complicated looking. And it got harder and harder to remember them. It got more and more useless. And so they stopped putting symbols on them. Actually, one, one interesting piece of trivia that I don't know is what would be the lowest numbered asteroid that doesn't have a symbol for itself. And my guess is it would be somewhere around asteroid number 40, something like that. Now, in connection with that, Shane, I wanted to get into this at some point, so I may as well say it now. In fact, the first four asteroids, one, two, three, and four, um, were discovered in 1801, 1804, 1804, and 1807. So in a span of a few years, and you know, you would you wouldn't you wouldn't think it was strange that folks might jump to the conclusion, oh, we've discovered four in just a few years, we might discover more. Mm -hmm. And so there was excitement and interest in getting in on this. And different folks all thought they could get famous by making these kind of discoveries, and they started working on this. And in fact, I should mention two names, neither of which, um, oh, okay, let me just get started here. One was Baron Xavier von Zach, who was a German astronomer who got all excited about asteroids and decided that 
And he wanted to run a sort of an international cooperative program to hunt for these things. And in order to help organize this program, he established what became the first scientific journal in astronomy. So the idea was that they would share suggestions and observations and negative results as well as discoveries through his journal, which was called Astronomische Nachrichten, a good German name. Mm-hmm. That was the first astronomical scientific technical journal. And the fellow that, uh, the second fellow I wanted to ma- name is someone contemporary, a Canadian by the name of Clifford Cunningham. And Clifford and I are cohorts. We were both born in 1955. And we've been, we have talked many times over the years about uh, asteroids, although we haven't, I haven't spoken with him recently. And he actually did a fair bit of historical research on Baron Xavier von Zack and the early editions of the Astronomische Nachrichten. And then the funding happened that after 1807, it dried up. There were no new asteroids discovered in the 1810s, 1820s, or even in the 1830s. Only after the discovery of Neptune in 1841 did the pace pick up again, and the next asteroid number five wasn't discovered until 1845, after the discovery of Neptune. And I I, I don't know if there's a reason for that, if maybe just technology and telescope building was gradually improving and got to the point where it was easier for visual observers to find asteroids by the time you got to the 1840s, or whether... The discovery of Neptune, which famously, of course, is connected to mathematical predictions based on orbital uh, variations in the observations of Uranus, whether maybe that somehow triggered folks to be more vigilant again and got back on the in the saddle of discovering asteroids. And then it started to ramp up after that from the 1840s into the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s. Many, many, many dozens of asteroids were discovered at that point. By the time you get to 1890, it's up around 500. Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, You know, Peter, one of the things that surprised Chris and I a little bit, so maybe just a little bit of back uh, backstory. We do a monthly episode where we talk about interesting things to observe in the upcoming month. And I don't know, a year or two ago, uh, well into the you know lifespan of our podcast, we added some asteroids uh, as interesting objects to look at in the month, but really not sure if anybody would care. <laughs> to our surprise, a lot of people care and a lot of people were very interested in observing asteroids and then began to um, uh, send us emails about other asteroids they were observing. And and it, 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 it surprised me for sure about how much interest there was. How did you get interested in asteroids and, and kind of what, what, what was the first thing that you remember that piqued your interest? Ah, you'll be pleased to know that it does not involve computers. Okay. So my story goes back to about 1964. And I was a young space cadet, and my um, public school library had a very limited collection of science fiction novels for young adults. Well, actually, I wouldn't even consider myself a young adult then. I would actually call it youth fiction. Peter, what, yeah? you're, you're originally from Germany, right? That Was that in Germany? No, I came to Canada. My family uh, immigrated from Germany when I was one year old. Oh, okay. So my entire childhood, my cultural upbringing was all Canadian. Okay. But at the same time, there was a certain German cultural heritage as well. 
Um, and that's why I can say astronomische Nachrichten without <laughs> spitting at anybody. <laughs> anyway, so uh, yeah, to get back. So this is James Morden Public School in Niagara Falls, Ontario. And they had a, a, a novel by a science fiction author named Alan E. Norse. And the book was Raiders from the Rings. And the adventure of having a sort of a semi-independent political structure out in the asteroid belt that was trying to declare independence from the nasty, tyrannical lords back on Earth. And all the spacecraft going back and forth and trying to establish their independence, almost like rebels. I, that just completely captivated me, and I was totally in love with asteroids after that. That's awesome. And Peter, um, I, go I got to hop in because I should have mentioned this as well. You've also you also do have an asteroid named after you, five eight nine nine Jetiki. That is correct. Yes, which looks like it's just at like perihelion uh, or something. Oh, that's a great one on you, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> I I haven't kept up with it lately, but there are a lot of different fun connections that we can talk about that start with five eight nine nine. Okay. Good stuff. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. Shane, go ahead. No, 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 all good. Um, how many, do you know how many you've observed, Peter, in your career? Sorry, how many asteroids I've yeah. observed? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a very bad observer. I don't like the cold. I fall asleep at in at inopportune moments, okay. inappropriate moments. And anytime I use a telescope, I end up pushing it wrong and it falls over. Hmm. Or something like that. So I've probably observed with my eyeball probably fewer than a dozen asteroids. Okay. And I've never taken any astrophotos or anything like that. But, um, you know, looking at asteroid pictures in data from other telescopes, from other observers and so on. Yeah. I mean, I, I've done an awful lot of that. Uh, for a short while there, back about 10 or 15 years ago, there was a telescope on the island of Maui in Hawaii, which has now, it's still there, but it's changed its uh, organization structure. It used to be called the Fox Telescope. And it was available for persons to use remotely. It was one of the first ones that was available for persons to use remotely. And I uh, got permission to use it. So I did take some photos of asteroids with the Fox Telescope remotely while I was basically sitting here in my studio in London, Ontario. And I was controlling a telescope on the island of Maui on the top of the mountain Haleakala. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, of course, a lot of folks do that. And it's a mm -hmm. really completely accepted and very fascinating and energetic branch of amateur astronomy to control telescopes remotely. Yeah, yeah. Great, great uh, option for cloudy slash cold nights when you just don't want to or can't go inside to observe. So. Yep. But yeah, it does take it. a certain, you, you've got to be, you got to have a certain patience and diligence and awareness and skill at the software. And you've got to, you've got to be able to kind of know what you're doing and to get mm -hmm. the, uh, get the download, the things and make sure that windows doesn't crash on you and all kinds of stuff like that, that, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, I can do it and I don't mind it, but it does, uh, it does sort of add a layer of extra knowledge and effort that you have to do. And um, I'm way too lazy to, to, to get at that. <laughs> That's fair. Um, how did you get into naming them, Peter? So um, 
you guys have probably heard of the Canadian comet discoverer, David H. Levy. Yeah, I know David. David. Yeah, so David and I met back in the late 1970s. And um, one of the kind of running jokes between David and myself and my wife, Diane, you know, we, we went on some long trips, the three of us. We drove to general assemblies together, had lots and lots of fun together. And one of the kind of running jokes was that Someday David was going to discover a comet that would make him really famous. <laughs> that turned out to be quite prescient. But in the process, David also got to know the folks that were in the, in the asteroid research business. And so David and I talked about naming asteroids and the idea that David actually, David's asteroid is numbered 3673. And uh, I don't remember exactly what year. I can find it out actually fairly quickly. Uh, 3673 was discovered in 1985. And so it would have been named some few years after that. And there was a sequence of um, two or three, I guess. Steve Edberg was asteroid 3672. And for instance, asteroid 3670 is named after Ruth Northcott, who's a Canadian. So there's a, a few of them in that spread there in the in the mid-3000s there. And so we talked about this, David getting this asteroid named for him because he was known to the, um, to the community of comet hunters and so on. You guys might know he discovered his first comet in 1984. So he had lots of friends that were connected with that sort of thing. And once it got obvious that um, David had the connections that he would have an asteroid named after him, he turned it around and asked me what I thought about having an asteroid named after me. And of course, I very modestly and humbly said that I would never do anything that was worthy of having an asteroid named after me. But just in case he should be prepared, that I told him I would actually prefer to share an asteroid name with my siblings. My brother is also an astronomer, and my sister is wonderful and very dear to us. And we've dragged her out many times when she was younger. And even today, she gets out there and observes with us sometimes. And so we claim her as a, as a joint astronomy group. And so I said to David quite clearly, I said, if it ever happened that someone wanted to name an asteroid after me, I would prefer them to name it after the family, the three of us, Robert, my brother, June, my sister, and myself. And so David remembered that. And when in the mid-90s, he was working with Gene and Carolyn Shoemaker. They discovered Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9, of course. And along with those discoveries of comets, you know, the method of, the, of using two photographs taken a little while apart and then comparing the two photographs, that method discovers comets as well as asteroids. So the, the, the Shoemakers had discovered uh, with David Levy and other research assistants helping them, they had discovered quite a few dozen of these comets, uh, sorry, of these asteroids along with the comets they discovered. And so, yeah, eventually they got to the point in their list of uh, folks they knew and friends thought, and folks they thought were worthy that uh, David said to Gene and Carolyn, let's put the Jetikis on the list. And that's how 5899 got named. Um, it was discovered in the late 1980s and it sat for quite a long while. We can talk about the delay in the uh, naming of asteroids as well, um, until the mid-90s. And the way it happened was at the uh, General Assembly, 
which was in uh, Windsor, Ontario in 1995. Carolyn Shoemaker was invited to be the Ruth Northcott lecturer. And so there we are in a lecture room with a couple hundred of the top friendliest, most fun amateur astronomers in Canada at the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada's General Assembly. And Carolyn stepped to the podium to give her lecture. And she said, before I start, want to announce that asteroid 5899 is named after Pete Jedicke. And in fact, they, they dragged me down to the front of the room to give a completely unrehearsed and unprepared thank you speech. <laughs> and I don't remember giving the speech, but there was somebody in the room with a camera. And that somebody in the room with the camera never reached out to me until the world of YouTube made it possible for them to share it with everybody in the world. <laughs> so if you go to YouTube, you will now find there's Pete Jedicke's acceptance speech in 1995, what I said when I uh, expressed my appreciation to David H. Levy and Jean and Carolyn Shoemaker for discovering and then suggesting my name along with my brother and my sister for that asteroid. Yeah, that's that's quite a, that's quite a fun story, you bet. Mm -hmm. Cool. So, Peter, how how do you go from, or how do they go from, so the, the asteroid is discovered, you talked a little bit about that, what's your involvement now in uh, in assisting with the placement of these names uh, on the asteroids? Like, what, what is the actual process there that uh, you go through? When an asteroid is discovered, uh, the first thing that happens is, nowadays, the discoverer, especially because it's all automated, has to give it some kind of a sort of an internal designation. This is, you know, target number, blah, blah, blah. And then if the asteroids kind of picked up a couple times, the pr process that was initiated way back 100 years ago was that the discovery of something that might be an asteroid immediately gets a designation with the uh, year and then basically a couple letters. So, for instance, uh, we just talked about, well, actually... Let me go back and, oh, no, they didn't do that that long ago. But if I look at Levy's asteroid, 3673, it was discovered on August 22nd, 1985, and got the designation 1985 QS. So that's the first designation that asteroid gets as soon as it's discovered. And if there was some mistake made, or if perhaps it wasn't really an asteroid, or perhaps it was an asteroid that had already been discovered before and has just been recovered without somebody realizing that it was already a known asteroid, then that designation basically dies. So the designations might not all line up with what eventually are accepted as asteroid discoveries. So I'm going to hop in right here oh, sure. and say, okay, so the uh, 1985 QS, that was the original name for uh, the comet that would later become Levy. Uh, what is it? Three, three six, seven, three. 3673. Uh, so the 1985 QS, is the QS, is that sort of like the month and uh, the period yes. of the month that it was discovered in? Okay. Yes, you're right. The, they've divided the year up, I think, into 26 two-week periods, and each one gets a letter. And then there's a process. I've forgotten if it's just in sequence or how they work that out, but how the other letters. And if more than more than a certain number of asteroids are discovered in a two-week period, then they just stick numbers on them. Okay. okay. So anyway, so that the so that uh, that designation then stays with that asteroid as as the uh, potential discovery, and then it has to go out for further observation. 
And when enough observations have taken place that a mathematical calculation can establish an orbit, then you know it's really an asteroid. Now, in the old days, that sometimes took years before you had enough observations to establish an orbit. Nowadays, it happens much more quickly, sometimes within a matter of days, certainly within weeks or months. Nowadays, it's, ex it's expected that a newly discovered asteroid will have its orbit established. And then, once that happens, then the asteroid gets its permanent asteroid number in numerical sequence. So if yesterday, asteroid number 528,643 was discovered, then today, 644 is going to be the next one that, uh, that gets named. And as I say, sometimes this might have been years after the original discovery. Once it has that number, then the original discoverer gets the privilege of proposing a name. And that might take a long time if the discoverer is busy. You know, back in the 19th century, there was an awful lot of, you know, uh, fame associated with catching those names. So people took it really seriously. And through the, through the 20th century, of course, it was a big deal, and it was considered quite an honor to have an asteroid named after someone. But the really big discoverers named, uh, discovered so many that they basically ran out of, you know, famous things to do, and they started naming them after their sons and daughters and cousins and so on and so forth. And that's how it kind of expanded and got to the point where it's kind of who you know. And so nowadays, the big uh, survey systems like Spacewatch or like the Shoemakers, uh, they're not doing it anymore, obviously. Both of them have passed away. Levy uh, doesn't do it uh, with them anymore. But the Shoemaker-Levy Asteroid Discovery Program back in the late 80s and through the 1990s, you know, they discovered so many asteroids. They just don't have time to name them all. And now that brings me to my brother's involvement in this. My brother, Robert, uh, got his PhD in physics at the University of Toronto and uh, decided he'd rather work in astronomy and moved to the Space Watch program at University of Arizona. And they were, uh, this is in the early 1990s, and they were the, the, the king of the heap back then. They were discovering, you know, 100 asteroids a month. And they were scientists. They were interested in the physical aspects of these discoveries. They do statistical analysis and so on. None of them had the slightest interest or time in naming asteroids, you know, one after another, after another, after another. And so I said to my brother, well, could I maybe make some suggestions and you put them through? And Robert loved that idea because it kind of, you know, gave him something to do among his colleagues there and kind of got the job done. And so starting around the year 2000 or so, we would propose lists of names. And uh, that's how I got interested in the first place. And over the years, I kind of got to know some of the, well, so the procedure for submitting the names. It goes through a committee of the International Astro Astronomical Union, which is now called the Working Group on Small Bodies Nomenclature. And so submissions have to go to that committee. And the submissions are supposed to come from the discoverer of the asteroids. But there's no law saying that someone else can't make a proposal. And if they know you, and if they know that you're taking it seriously, they take the suggestion seriously. And so in 2018, I chatted with one of the members of the committee, 
and basically got that person's blessing to uh, submit list of proposed names for asteroids on behalf of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. And so the process took a fair bit of time. First, I had to go, I approached all the centers of the RESC and asked each one to nominate someone. In most cases, a center nominated one of their own members, someone who, you know, had contributed an awful lot to their center. And in some cases, it was something local or regional or whatever. And we can talk about some of the fun stories that came out of that. And so basically, I put the list of proposals into the committee. And then the committee, they, they've really streamlined things recently. But they had a very cumbersome method of approving the names. And so it took a long time to get the first list that I proposed uh, all officially on the list. And then when it was finished and everybody was pretty thrilled about having those asteroid names, I said, I'm going to do it again. And the second list that I put forward got approved much more expeditiously. And I was kind of pleased about that. And it's now been a few months since that list was finalized and accepted. So that I think that answers your question, but I've forgotten if there was a twi a twist at the end of your question that I that I that I looked gl glossed over. No, no twist, no twist at all. <laughs> that's fascinating. That's mm -hmm. that's really cool. Yeah, I was looking at a little bit at your brother's uh, biography there, just just as we were chatting. Um, yeah, really cool. Did you have a question with that, Shane? No, no, I didn't. No, it was uh, that's fascinating. I was wondering, uh, Peter, just as we've been uh, talking here and you've been telling us this, uh, earlier on you mentioned the, uh, the, the former planet Pluto uh, and, and you, you know, mentioned that it was now an asteroid. It made me wonder about the difference between asteroids and dwarf planets because, you know, we, we've seen those, uh, those labels uh, placed, placed against a variety of objects. And I, I just wondered if, if maybe there was a, uh, like a way to clarify that, at least in my mind, I know it's something I'm a little bit confused on. Yeah. Interesting um, twist there. I, I've kind of ignored the dwarf planets in, in all of this because in terms of nomenclature, they are asteroids. Okay. So the dwarf planets have asteroid numbers and the naming process, if a new dwarf planet is discovered, and of course there are new dwarf planets being discovered at the far edge of the solar system, dwarf planets that are big enough to be considered dwarf planets and the in in the inner solar system have probably all been discovered. I doubt we'll get any more of those, but new dwarf planets will be treated as asteroids for the purposes of designation and nomenclature and naming. Fair. Then I was also curious about uh Earlier on, you mentioned that initially there were symbols placed against the uh, the asteroids as far as the naming convention went. The first 40 had symbols. I, I was wondering if they would consider or if you had thought about creating your own symbol for your asteroid. Oh, that's an interesting <laughs> idea. I'm not really much into symbols, but you know, there you go. I can't imagine trying to think. Give me, give me time. Maybe something will come to me. <laughs> I was just thinking, yeah, it'd be kind of neat if, if they would allow people that had their um, name attached to an asteroid come up with their own uh, uh, symbols. So, yeah. 
Uh, let's see. So what are some Canadians? You mentioned that you've been involved in, in naming of the asteroids. We talked about your asteroid and David uh, Levy's asteroid. Well, first of all, maybe I should ask this. Have you been able to observe your asteroid? I'm, I'm guessing it's probably fairly faint, but maybe I thought I would ask. Have you seen it or taken a photograph of that? Uh, well, the answer is yes, but not not with not my, not with my eyeball. Um, I I don't think you'd pick up any asteroid whose number is greater than about a couple thousand. Mm-hmm. Even even in the three thousands where David Levy is, I don't think they're bright enough to see with uh, to see with your eye unless you got a really big telescope. Um, and maybe there are big you know bigger and bigger telescopes nowadays. So maybe maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe there are some observers out there who are going to try and tackle this kind of project, but they're they're fairly dim. And so, of course, photography is the way to go. And especially with the modern technology, the cameras are able to get down to much dimmer magnitudes than we could 20 years ago. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I've taken pictures of 5899 Jetiki with the Fox telescope, the one I mentioned earlier, which is on Haleakala in Maui. And that's the only one I've used myself, but I have had other folks send me pictures that they took with their cameras. And of course, now, one of the really exciting projects in Canada, it's not new, it's been been around for a few years at least, is the Burke Gaffney Observatory on top of the 22-story dorm uh, at St. Mary's University, where the telescope is basically available for remote operations. And, you know, individuals can apply for an account there. You go into a queue, and, you know, whenever the telescope has time to get around to your request, you can you can get the telescope to take a picture of basically any object you want. And so that telescope's been used by, for instance, Dave Chapman, who you mentioned mm-hmm. a few minutes ago, and some of the other Nova Scotia types. They're all really keen on this. They've got a, their own little asteroid club going out there in Nova Scotia. <laughs> and so they're trying to get pictures of that. And I know some of the... Um, some of the folks with private observatories are doing this as well. And I just don't know enough about them. I wouldn't want to center them out by mentioning their names right here in case I've got their details wrong. But I will mention one person who was a very close friend, uh, Tom Glinos, who was a London Center member. And he had a remotely observed, a remote observatory in Arizona with which he discovered a bunch of asteroids. And uh, Tom passed away last year. And so I, I'll, I'll mention that in passing and say that uh, as a tribute to Tom, I really uh, I really appreciated his friendship all those years. And so he discovered a bunch of asteroids and he probably observed some more. I don't have access to his data. I don't know if it was recorded or kept anywhere, but it would be kind of nice if uh, if we knew which asteroids he'd, he'd uh, observed over and above the ones that he discovered. So yeah, it is certainly possible, but it's hard work. What would be some uh, Canadians, like, I think there's a few prominent Canadians that have asteroids named after them. I know Terrence Dickinson yeah. had one named after him. Are, are there any others that uh, stick out in your mind? So in the in the days, let's say, in the mid-20th century, from, let's say, 1960, even into the 1980s, you know, the, the really well-connected professional research astronomers in Canada pretty much all got asteroids named after them. I mentioned Ruth Northcott, so we have an asteroid named after Chant and uh, C.S. Beals, those kind of folks like that who contributed a lot to Canadian research astronomy then. And I think that's continued, but again, I wouldn't want to try and jump into them off the top of my head. Uh, what I and, and, and now that both of those recent lists, 
So the centers of the RASC, almost every center now has at least one person associated with their club who has an asteroid named after them, either a past president, perhaps. Uh, one that comes to mind is Donald Bottenheimer was one of the founders of the Windsor Center back in the 1940s. Uh, I don't have his number memorized, but the Windsor Center uh, recommended that we uh, propose Bottenheimer's name for an asteroid. So there's an asteroid Bottenheimer. And this is true pretty much across the board. You mentioned um, other presidents of the Royal Astronomical Society. James Edgar has an asteroid named after him. Chris Gaynor was on that recent list. He was a recent RAC president. Some outreach um, folks who've done a lot of work in outreach to the public with astronomy, like uh, Lori Roach and RAC Victoria Center. She has an asteroid named after her. One that got a lot of attention on that recent list was uh, three fellows who do what you're doing. They have an astronomy podcast called uh, Sunday Night Astronomy, and they are they're in New Brunswick. And uh, uh, New Brunswick Center recommended we name an asteroid for the three of them for their joint efforts. And they just thought that was the bee's knees, and they just went crazy with uh, <laughs> getting uh, newspaper articles, radio interviews. I, I got a whole bunch of requests for information about that. So that was quite a quite a quite a bit of fun. Um, comet discoverers like Rolf Meyer, yep. he he and his uh, he did their asteroid is named uh, by by Shoemaker and Levy as well, and it did something similar. Their asteroid is named Lyroma, which stands for Linda, Rolf, and Matthew. That's Rolf and his wife and their son Matthew. So it's the three of them together sharing that asteroid. I, again, I don't remember the number off the top of my head. So those are those are some quick examples, Chris. But I, I hope you'll give me a chance to mention that uh, all of the asteroids that we know of whose names have Canadian connections are included in an accessible database on the RASC's website. So this is the sort of thing that someone could look up uh, or they could go there and browse the list and look for these kind of names and suggestions. And as well, I, I really was hoping, and I and I, I hope we're still in that process. You know, I wanted to make the that list, uh, that database of asteroid names, so reliable that um, even folks who are looking for actual kind of research, like let's say journalists, if a journalist is looking for something about a Canadian asteroid, I hope they will go to the RASC website because that's the reliable source for information about Canadian uh, names of asteroids. So we're 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 trying to I, I'm trying to establish that reputation for that uh, function on our website. So how, sorry, how can they find that list? I'm sorry, I might have missed that. Yeah, no, it's uh, I mean the RASC's website is of course rasc.ca, and if you go under I think it's under programs, and then it says astronomy in Canada, and then there's a list of different things about Canadian astronomy. One of them says asteroids with Canadian connections. I'm just Googling it here. Oh, here we go. Yeah, asteroids with, yeah, home programs, asteroids in Canada. I'm going to stick that in our show notes here uh, in case people are. Yeah, much appreciated. I, I, I would love for folks to recognize that as authoritative for this resource. Are there any other resources uh, that people uh, should be aware of when it comes to uh, asteroids, either uh, Canadian or otherwise? Uh, Right, for sure. So the the International Astronomical Union, of course, is the official, you know, they're the keeper of all the asteroid information, basically. 
And so there's a couple of things that they do that folks might be interested in following up on. The uh, sub-branch of the IAU that basically looks after all the data with the computers and whatnot is called the Minor Planet Center. And so they have a website which is fairly thorough, but it's also a little bit technical. And so if you're just casually looking for some information, you might not find it right away on the Minor Planet Center's website, but they have what I use a lot. Uh, they have a, a complete list, basically up to date, always within the last couple of weeks, it's updated, of essentially every single asteroid that ever was named. Hmm. It's all just in a text file. So there's now there's something like 25 or 26,000 named asteroids. And like I say, it's updated pretty much once or twice a month. And so that is the official list uh, of asteroid names that are correct on, on that website. And they also have other resources like the bulletins where the names are announced. They're linked on that website as well. Another resource that's uh, quite fun to work with is at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So it's a jpl.nasa.gov website. It's called the Solar System Dynamics Group, SSD. And they have a website where you can type in any number or the name of an asteroid that you're searching for, and you will immediately, bingo, up it comes. And it gives you a lot more than just the name. The discovery in information is there. It's buried a little bit, but you have to find it. But what it does is it actually gives the known um, orbital data on that asteroid. And the part that's really fun for casual astronomers is they have an orbit viewer. So you click on the orbit viewer and it tells you, it shows you graphically the orbit of the asteroid in the solar system relative to the planets. And you can pick and choose how you want to display that. It's quite a fully featured graphic function and it's a lot of fun to work with. And when I give a presentation that has anything to do with asteroids or comets, I almost always go to the SSD website, generate an orbit viewer graphic and put it into my whatever presentation I'm doing that's relevant to uh, the topic. Very cool. Yeah, I'm just, uh, what I'm doing as you're speaking here, I'm just sort of frantically Googling, grabbing some URLs and dropping them into those show notes so right. the listeners can kind of follow along. Because I uh, uh, didn't mention this at the start, but a lot of people listen to our podcast while they're commuting. And then they're always giving us a hard time when they're like, well, I can't write it down when I'm driving. Right. And uh, and nor should they. They shouldn't be trying to do that. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I've been taking. And we uh, need an auditory QR code. Exactly. So you can be listening to a podcast and you either click a button or even say a code word and your computer instantly grabs that link. Exactly. All right. I'm just seeing if I can find one on the uh, Planetary Science Institute. Here we got asteroids. Very cool. Does Do the asteroids have to be named after... Uh, like a living person or, or thing or? Uh, no, could, no, okay. they don't. And in the early days for the first uh, hundred or so asteroids, they kept the tradition that went with the planets of giving the asteroids names from mythology. And even today there are, you know, a lot of asteroids, new discovered, new discoveries do get mythological names. But there's not really any restriction on whether a person being honored is uh, alive today 
or a former person. I was, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting bit of trivia. I can browse through my resources and sometimes I can ask myself, well, like who's the oldest person living today who has an asteroid named after them? Or another thing I'm interested in is which living person today was the youngest when they had their asteroid named? Wow. So there's a couple of examples of asteroids who are named, let's say, for the grandchild of the discoverer. And the grandchild was age one when they got their <laughs> asteroid name. And now they're 80 years old. So they've had their own asteroid for 79 years. I would love to interview that person. That's the kind of trivia stuff I kind of go hunting for. The restrictions on the names are that the names cannot be uh, politically charged or military oriented. So names of, you know, dictators or generals or something like that, where there's going to be obviously folks in history who are going to be winners and losers, and they're not all going to be happy with having that honor attached that those names are restricted. You're not allowed to do that. Okay. Yeah. That, that sort of answers my other questions there. Oh, that's interesting. Very, very cool. They're very trying cool. to discourage frivolous names now. Um, you know, I think this kind of, it, it kind of, you can, you can decide for yourself whether you think this was a positive or a negative thing, but some years ago there was an asteroid named Mr. Spock. Oh, and okay, so Mr. Spock's a famous character in science fiction. But it turns out that the discoverer proposed the name not because of Mr. Spock, who was the sidekick of Captain Kirk and all those wonderful adventures, but because Mr. Spock was the name of their cat. <laughs> and so that's there now in the official list of the asteroid <laughs> names. And some folks feel, perhaps controversially, that this is frivolous. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to discourage frivolous names but i haven't i don't know anything recently where any i i, I mean obviously they don't have, publish a list of rejected names mm -hmm. and so i don't i'm not quite i'm not quite uh connected well enough to the inside track to hear these things under the table maybe names are being proposed and being rejected um i i, I mean i've avoided that myself i i don't propose frivolous names so i don't have them rejected i have had a couple of Names rejected um, because of mistakes that I made. Uh, Thunder Bay Center nominated someone who already had an asteroid named after them, so that was rejected. And you know, uh, I, I just I just missed it. I just missed the fact that that person already had an asteroid named after them. So I like I like the fact that they did put the cat up there because there's there's a defunct uh, constellation which was Felis the cat, which. Uh, uh, the French astronomer Joseph uh, Lalande had uh, had put into the star charts, and it got booted out. Right, so it was his pet cat again. Somebody. Well, I'm I'm not a big fan of cats or animals, so I'm perfectly happy leaving them out. But you can't, of course. <laughs> there's so many constellations that are named after animals. I'm just glad they're not, you know, in my house. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Where are my notes? I have to ask, have you been to the Fork River Brewing Company yet? I have. We've How's had that? two, um, I'm pretty sure that it's exactly two, Astronomy on Tap events there. Mm. And we're planning another one, I think, for March so that we can preview the uh, the big total solar eclipse. 
Yeah, the Fork River Brewing Company's been very supportive. Uh, the, the 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 proprietor there is Andrew. now the club secretary for RSC London Center. How convenient! Yeah, <laughs> they, they make and great of course, beer. I, as you probably know, Chris, he's been very uh, creative with his uh, artwork and names of his yes brews. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he sent us a number of them uh, a little while ago, and they there was not a bad one in the bunch. They were all delicious. Yeah, Good. he's he's super nice. Andrew's Andrew's amazing because unfortunately I can no longer drink a, a traditional beer, and uh, and so he sent me a bunch of uh, these ciders, and they were out of this world. <laughs> to good, say. good, good. I, I'm I'm a fan of the ciders myself. So yeah, I hear yeah. you. Yeah, they were awesome. Yeah, so yeah, and it's been funny because he he won a calendar, and we've had some back and forth, and um, mentioned the Fork Re- Brewing Company on on the show a few times, and some of the other listeners in sort of the Southern Ontario general area have been have like gone and dropped by and picked up some uh, some beer there. So we thought that was pretty fun too. And then one of those listeners, I think, sent Shane out some of the beer uh, on another occasion. So yeah, it's been, it's been a fun thing. Well, I totally love the idea that we, you know, support Andrew's, you know, propriety business there. The idea that astronomers will just wander through the front transom and start buying his product. Just, I, I just think that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's it. That's what we do on cloudy nights, though. Oftentimes, especially in Ontario, we we would often plan to go. We we would say we're going to go observing or go for a beer if it's not clear, and uh, and then we probably drank more beers than we had nights of observing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that. Kind of to the end of uh, my show notes. I think we're getting to the end of the show here. But uh, Peter, uh, do you have anything to uh, add before we uh, conclude? Well, Chris, you you and I, and we, we did talk about things ahead of time. So we've covered the list of things I know you wanted to cover. And there's not really much else about asteroids that, uh, you know, I could, uh, that that's worth bringing in at this present time. I just want to remind folks that the RESC's website does have this resource. And I hope it'll get uh, used more. And I hope it'll become accepted, like even for things like, let's say, uh, a young person who has to do a project in school. And they find out that uh, it involves asteroids somehow. I want them to feel comfortable going to the RAC's website to look these things up. Do you have anything to add, Shane? Uh, just want to say thank you, Peter. This is really fascinating for me. Um, the world of asteroids is not one that I've spent a lot of time reading about or researching. Uh, and I really enjoyed just hearing some of the behind the scenes and how this came to be and, and how the names are uh, handed out and all of that stuff. So thank you very much for coming on the show. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, you're welcome, both of you. I, I really appreciated the opportunity to talk about something that I'm really passionate about and giving me this opportunity to talk with you. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on, Peter. It was uh, great to catch up. And yeah, let's look forward to doing one on globular clusters in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks again. And thanks to our listeners for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and share the show with other stargazers. You know, you can always send us your show ideas, observations, and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you everyone for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.